So like I said, um, for those who have never celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, I'm going to refer to the Feast of Trumpets. Can I do this? I'm going to refer to it as Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Teruah. All those interchangeably, okay? Is everybody okay with that? Um, but uh, there, there is this notion sometimes that, that I've, I actually did some digging, and you can find teachers, especially in the Hebrew Roots Movement, uh, which is a, is a movement that isn't like really grounded in the Jewish roots of the faith. It's more so kind of wanting to sort of reinvent some wheels. And we're, we're not part of the Hebrew Roots Movement here. We're, we're part of a Messianic a movement or Messianic Judaism. So when we approach a holy day or, or interpretation of a commandment, we look first and foremost, well, how has Judaism been doing it for thousands of years? And then we, we compare that to what our rabbi says about that commandment, how to walk out the commandment, and if they jive with each other. And we, we work within the parameters of how historic Judaism and how Yeshua's Judaism would have interpreted that and not how an, an internet teacher who we don't know and haven't observed and, and don't have a relationship with how he would interpret that commandment. Oh, thank you. It's a good mother. Put it exactly that. Um, <laughs> you just increase your inheritance. <laughs> now, Judaism has, a, has some things wrong, right? We can all agree that Judaism over the years, like any religion, like Christianity, you know, things... Men like give us about two weeks and we really mess things up, don't we? We like to make things about us. We like to make things about leaving a legacy, legacy on that religion. So I'm not, I'm not saying that Judaism is be all in and all, but when we approach a commandment, we, we don't first and force, foremost say, let's reinvent the wheel in this commandment and interpret the commandment free of how historically Judaism has interpreted this commandment. But that's just us as a congregation. Um, but... This, this truth claim I hear probably every year or so um, is the following, that the Jews learned to keep the first day of the seventh month in Babylon, and Rosh Hashanah is really Babylonian. It's a Babylonian influence, and it's polluted the Jewish faith. Um, and we shouldn't really call it Rosh Hashanah. We shouldn't even treat it as a new year, but we should call it Yom Teruah exclusively or the Feast of Trumpets. And the idea of Rosh Hashanah is actually, that it being a new year is actually a pollutant. Um, and uh, that there is no evidence in the Torah for the, the first day of the seventh month being some sort of turning of a year. Um, those are truth claims that I've, I've heard repeated um, by people even within the body of Messiah or the Hebrew Roots Movement, and both of those are false. And I'm going to explain to you today why. I teach this class during the fundamentals of the faith class when I teach Hebrew, um, but it's, I thought it would be good to teach it before uh, the Feast of Trumpets. Um, as a refresher, but also I did, I did some additional research this past week and, um, and learned some, but some of the books I use, yes, I use books. Um, I really, I really rely on this book a lot. So when I'm going to be teaching on acts, for instance, um, I'm going to be tearing this book apart. This is, I just, this is a new version of the old version that I had. Um, this is a newer edition that someone donated to our library here. And uh, so it doesn't have all a bunch of highlighter markings all over that I would have done. But I do have the older edition that was actually belonged to my dad. It's a college textbook called The Backgrounds of Early Christianity. And it's a very scholarly, heady read, but it's broken up. You don't have to read the whole thing. It has a table of contents in it. So for instance, I know that in the 70s era or 70s-ish in here, it talks about Second Temple Judaism. So it goes all, all over Second Temple Judaism, what the rabbis believed, what the Mishnah is, what the, the Levites did. And it, it's not all about Christianity, in other words. And it goes into the Roman, Roman uh, culture. What are the Roman uh, class system, the Roman currencies? So it's a very comprehensive textbook 
that uh, college students use, especially seminary college students use, but it's just a history book, okay? It's not a theological book or by any stretch, okay? It doesn't, it, it's not practical theology. This is another history book that um, I've been digging into this week is uh, the ancient Near East, an anthology of text and pictures. So this is another very heady read as well, but you can find table of contents. So pertaining to this subject, I want to I want to be able to verify if this is true or false. I'm going to go to the section in here that's about Babylonian cosmology and calendars. Okay, so I can go there. The Babylonian calendar and cosmology, Babylonian prophetic oracles and those kinds of things. The Babylonian creation myth. Um, it has has Hittite Hittite creation myths, Egyptian creation myths. Um, it has uh, proto Canaanite creation myths. It has all that stuff, and they're broken out by region of that land, okay? So a great book um, to reference as well. So I say that to say, there's a, there's a, it's easy to make a website, it's easy to make a YouTube video, but it's a lot harder to really dig in and do research and write a book, a scholarly book, and then have other PhDs and scholars review that material and critique that material. That's very healthy that the academic world does that but you can't do that on the internet, okay? So in other words, um, Gabe Rutledge makes a YouTube video making this truth claim. I can claim whatever I want on the internet. And the only feedback I might get are comments on that video on the YouTube video. But those comments are coming from people just like you or, you know, it's, it's not coming from people who have studied the ancient Near Eastern world as a career and have written about it as a career and have actually gotten their hands dirty digging in the dirt of the ancient Near East looking at looking at artifacts and you know that that's really healthy to bring that criticism to a topic like this so the what we can do is just kind of scratch the surface and ride on the shoulders of these scholars who write things like this and and then come to our own conclusions so I'm gonna prove these false basically but here is a screenshot of a teacher's website. Um, and I'm not going to name the teacher. I've met this teacher on a number of different occasions, um, and they're very well known. But they say one field of Babylonian religious influence was on the observance of Yom Teruah as a New Year's celebration. That's a truth claim, right? Right. He's making a truth claim. From very early times, the Babylonians had a lunar solar calendar, very similar to the biblical calendar. That's actually true. The result was that Yom Teruah often fell out on the same day as the Babylonian New Year's festival, Akitu. Okay, that truth claim right there, 100% false. And I'm going to explain why. So then he goes on to make a, a supposition, basically, that, that because the Babylonians did the Akitu festival in the fall, that the Jews adopt that, and then they started calling it Yom Teruah Rosh Hashanah. That's false, okay? So the premise... From this sentence down, really from, from this sentence down, all that is built on a faulty premise. And this person has a master's um, in biblical studies from Hebrew University. They have been proven faulty in some other areas of their scholarship as well, and they did not give an account for it. And I can share that with you privately, but um, like just very, very outright, just wrong and just ignoring some very important evidence on some, some other topics. But he says, it is outright bizarre to celebrate Yom Teruah as a new year. This biblical festival falls out on the first day of the seventh month. However, in the context of Babylonian culture, this was perfectly natural. The Babylonians actually celebrated Akitu, New Year's, 
twice every year. Okay, I want to stop here and talk about that. I found zero evidence of that truth claim being true. That there was only one New Year's celebration in Babylon, and it was only one, it was actually 12 days long, and we're going to talk about when that was. So he makes the claim basically that the Jews in exile in Babylon adapted their calendar and synchronized to their calendar, and that's why we call it Rosh Hashanah. When he says, he goes on to say, Exodus 12, 2 says, this month, talking about the month of Aviv, should be the beginning of months for you. Okay? That's true. He's quoting the Bible there. That's a true, true statement. That the month of Aviv in the spring is the beginning of the months. Okay? That's a, true, that's a true claim. So here's part one of this truth claim that comes up every so often. That Jews learned the new year in the seventh month in Babylon. Okay? Here's part two of that truth claim. That there's no scriptural evidence for there being a new year in the seventh month. And I'm going to prove both of these false. Um, 100% false. But here is Akitu. Remember he referenced this holiday known as Akitu? And I've got a couple uh, articles printed out on Akitu. I've been researching it. Let me read a little bit about it. Following the first new moon after the vernal equinox, which I'm not going to tell you when that is just yet, the Babylonians of ancient Mesopotamian would honor the rebirth of the natural world with a multi-day festival called Akitu. This early New Year celebration dates back to around 2000 BC and is believed to have been deeply intertwined with religion and mythology. During Akitu, statues of the gods were paraded through the city streets and rites were enacted to symbolize their victory over the forces of chaos. Through these rituals, the Babylonians believed the world was symbolically cleansed and recreated by the gods in preparation for the new year and the return of this, this season, which I'm not going to say yet. One fascinating aspect of Akitu involved a kind of ritual humiliation endured by the Babylonian king. This peculiar tradition saw the king brought before a statue of the god of Marduk. And Marduk is a, a false Babylonian god. But did you know um, that Mordecai in the book of Esther is actually named after Marduk? Mordecai, or Marduk lives. Interesting. And Esther is named after another Babylonian goddess. Yeah. But they each have Hebrew names as well. So uh, he was stripped, the, the, the king would be stripped of his royal regalia and forced to swear that he had led the city with, un, with honor. A high priest would then slap the monarch and drag him by his ears in the hope of making him cry. If royal tears were shed, it was seen as a sign that Marduk was then satisfied and had symbolically extended the king's rule. Some historians have since argued that these political elements suggest that Akitu was used by the monarchy as a tool for reaffirming the king's divine power over his people. So this Akitu festival is actually celebrated today. Did you know that? There are still Assyrian people who can trace their lineage and their genealogies back to the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians and the Chaldeans. They live in uh, a big plain area of northern Iraq, and they're still there. They, they still celebrate Akitu. And this is a flyer that I found on their Facebook page that says, Akitu, New Year Festival, Chaldean Babylon, uh, you know, the indigenous people of Mesopotamia. So before Iraq and the Mesopotamian, the Fertile Crescent, as we maybe call it sometimes, before all that became Muslim, they were practicing this cultic religion to the god of Marduk. Many of these people, oddly enough, these ancient Chaldeans and Assyrians, you know they're now Christians. But they still celebrate Akitu as a new year, but they're all, they're all Christians. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. But here, here's a picture of them. 
you can go on YouTube and you can watch their New Year's celebrations. They sing and they dance and they you know play drums and whole families, thousands of people out walking the streets. That's in Assyria. Ancient Assyria, yeah, uh, what was Assyria, and now northern Iraq, southern Turkey. Um, but these people are ancient Chaldeans or ancient Assyrians, and they still keep this. You know, it's kind of like when you go to, haven't you been to a powwow before? You know, they have one in Daleville every year, and it's like you're keeping that culture alive as a cultural kind of thing. Like, Ariana's hiding her face now because she's not because of <laughs> I made a point not to look at you while I said that. <laughs> Historical, not religious. You see a lot of bad dancing at powwows. <laughs> it's historical and not religious as much, correct. So these people, as far as I know, they're not, there's no king that they're bringing before a, a statue and pulling his ears and slapping him. They're not doing that. It's more of a cultural connection. Just like you might see somebody who's part of the Navajo tribe, they, they go to a powwow and they put on Navajo garb and they do a Navajo dance, but they identify as a Catholic. They're doing that to keep their culture alive. That's what these people are doing. Okay? As, as far as I know, I, I didn't see any evidence of them worshiping Marduk. But when does it happen is kind of the big question to, to, to really um, destroy part one of that. When do you think this happens? It happens in the spring. This festival, the Babylonian New Year, which we can still observe with our eyes today, which scholars say was going on in Babylon, Akitu. It happened in the Babylonian month called Nisanu. Nisanu in Akkadian language. Nisanu. Now, that's where the Jews got that name for that month, Nisan. So on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, that's Passover. But biblically, it's called Aviv. But that's when this festival would happen and still happens to this day is in the spring. It doesn't, as our friend here makes the claim, it doesn't happen twice a year. So if I go ask these people, hey, did your ancient people and do you still to this day celebrate a New Year's twice a year? They would say, no, we don't. We celebrate in the spring for 12 days in the month of Nisanu. Okay. So there we kind of debunk that first one. Right. Do you think? they don't celebrate a holy day or a new year's in the fall. So could the Jews have adopted the Rosh Hashanah concept from the Babylonians? No, because it doesn't mesh. It doesn't jive up time-wise. Okay. But where do they get it from? Is still kind of the question, right? Um, how many new years are, do we have in the USA? One. Seven. Not one. Seven. Seven. Okay. Okay, let's count them out. No, you're thinking you're thinking like other countries. I'm saying just in the USA. So we've got the Gregorian year that starts January 1st, right? Fiscal year, tax year. One that just started a couple weeks ago. If you have kids, you know. School year. What's another one? How old are all of you? Birthday. And do you reckon that based on January 1st every year? No. No, you have your birthday year, right? That's just off the top of my head. I come up with five real quickly. So the Jewish religion has four New Year's. We have five, at least five. They have four. And sometimes we look at that and we're like, oh, that's crazy. Why do they have four? Because there's different components of Jewish life and Israeli life and the Torah lifestyle that you have to, you have to, as those different components revolve around each other, just like the tax year, the school year, they're all revolving around each other like that. We have to reckon those different things. And we'll talk about why that is here in a second. But here's Leviticus 23, verse 24. And this is talking about this day that's in question right now. Yom Teruah. Okay. Now I want you to listen for what I don't say. 
Uh, I'll read it in the original language, okay? So it says, Daber, can you, can you see that? Daber el bene Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel. Lemor, say to them, Bechodesh Hashvi'i, in the seventh Chodesh, in the seventh month. Be'echad uh, lechodesh, in the first day of that Chodesh, of that month. Yihayeh lechem Shabbaton, take half for yourself a Sabbath, the Sabbaton. Zikron teruah, a, a remembering with a teruah. A teruah is like a loud shout or a loud noise, an alarm. Mikra Kodesh, a holy convocation or even better translated is like a rehearsal. A holy rehearsal, okay? So there it is. There's the verse in question. That lays out this holy day, what we're supposed to do. So let's talk about what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have a teruah, or hear a teruah, an alarm. All right? One of the best ways you can achieve this is to blow a shofar. All right? Then we're supposed to get together with other people and have a mikra kodesh, a holy convocation or rehearsal. Then it's supposed to be a, where'd it go? Shabbaton, a Sabbath. So three main things. Get together with other people, hear a teruah, and treat it like a Sabbath. Three main things. Now, th that's, that's good. Uh, it's pretty laid out there, clear and everything, right? And, it's, and, and it becomes called the day of a teruah, a yom teruah. But there's one kind of, like, big question that it doesn't answer for me. If I said, hey, Noah, I want you to set your alarm clock every morning at 5, 10 a.m. on the 1st of July for the rest of your life. What would Noah's first words out of his mouth be? Why? Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> so when I go to this and I see we're supposed to get together with other people and we're supposed to hear an alarm and we're supposed to call it a Sabbath, my first reaction is, yeah, I'll do that. But why? <laughs> you see? Because the teruah is an alarm. So wait, wait, what am I doing? What, why am I waking up that early? And why am I doing this every year? You know, and, and God likes us to ask why. He wants us to obey. Obeying earns us the right to ask why, not the other way around. Sometimes we ask why and then we obey. My dad would always say, why means why should I obey you? We don't want to do that. We want to obey, then ask why, okay? No to respond with why. Well, in the ancient world, Life revolved around this. What is this? No. It's calories. <laughs> yeah, I know it's wheat, but it's stuff that gives us energy, right? I could pluck these little things off right now, even though these are years and years old. I could, I think my mother-in-law grew this. I could pluck these out and I could put them in my mouth and I could chew them and I would begin to feel the, and taste the sweet sensation of carbohydrates giving me energy, right? It's calories. The ancient world revolved around this stuff, calories. We don't think of that way in these terms now, do we? We don't think about calories because we can just whip through a drive-through and get calories pretty quickly. We swipe a plastic thing through a machine and then out comes calories. Well, in the ancient world, yeah. In the ancient, or I can just go to my mom's house and my boys always get ramen noodles there in her pantry. Yeah, they steal them. Um, in the ancient world, if you didn't have this or grow this or somehow acquire this, you died. Life revolved around getting calories. 
I always say that America's problems can be summed up in two things. Too much free time and too many calories. If we had less free time and not, not as many calories, we would have way fewer problems than we have in our country right now. So what happened in the ancient Near Eastern world, when your life revolved around this, your life in the year kind of had two main upticks in it, two big climatic experiences. What do you think those would be? We do that here in the South and some places in the U.S. Planting and harvesting. Planting and then harvesting. Exactly. So as you planted, you were like, really, oh, this could go either way, couldn't it? This could go either way. Either the weather is bad or the weather is good. We get not enough rain, too much rain. It's too hot. It's not hot enough, right? All these, all these different variables come into play when you put just one of these things in the ground and your, your survival depended on it. Think about that. So when you're sowing something, you're appealing to the gods, just like a kitu. You're appealing to the gods. We just put a bunch of seeds in the ground. Can you please, please show us favor and let those seeds get big enough to harvest? Now, what would the next climactic experience of your life be? The harvesting of this stuff. Then it's like, yes, food everywhere. Let's party. Let's party like it's 1999, right? <laughs> because we have calories, right? And then what, what would our position towards the gods be? Thanks. Gratitude and thanks, exactly. Do you think the Israelis, the ancient Israelis, were exempt from this? No. No. They absolutely, their lives revolved around this stuff. Now, did they wash, worship Marduk and Ishtar and all that? No. They worshiped the God of Israel, El Shaddai, their all provider. But absolutely, when, when, when sowing time came, you better believe they were praying for, for fortune and favor, right? And then when harvest time came, they were celebrating, they were partying. So the ancient world, every civilization in the ancient world, their celebrations revolved around this stuff. Now, as time went on and this stuff got more, easily to, more easy to produce, their ancient celebrations revolved around events so think about our celebrations in the united states of america mm -hmm. do any of them revolve around this stuff yes. what thanksgiving. thanksgiving yeah yeah you're right you're right yeah. thanksgiving would anyone else well when we celebrated at christmas there was always a meal involved with yeah but it wasn't about the providence of no. of a meal right well what did it revolve around yes yeah but i mean how did that all start the birth of Christ. Yeah. Think about 4th, 4th of July. What did that revolve around? Birth of a nation. Birth of a nation. Yeah. What about, um, what's another holiday? Um, <laughs> what? Groundhog Day. What does that revolve around? It revolves, yeah, it revolves around like uh, the, the weather, but also like wouldn't a groundhog see a shadow or something and it'd be like five more months or something? I don't know. I lived in, I grew up in Florida. I don't have winter. Not on the top of my list. Memorial Day. Memorial Day. What does that revolve around? Around the uh, wars and stuff that we had. Yeah. Had. Yeah. It's an event. What about Veterans Day? Veterans the, Day. The signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. What about, um, what's another? Uh, Easter. President's Day. Easter. President's Day. But you get the idea, right? That our celebrations as human beings went from celebrating this stuff and the accumulation of this stuff and the growing of this stuff and the harvesting of this stuff to events. Okay. The same is true in Israel's history, that celebrations were about this, and then over top of that were events that happened, okay? Take, for instance, Acts chapter 2. That's a harvest day. 
It's the, it's the bringing in of the barley, okay? That's why we count a unit of measurement of barley. We count up to 50 of them, don't we? The 50 omer count. It's like, it's like counting like uh, 50 cups of wheat <laughs> or 50 cups of Cheerios. <laughs> like that's how we would translate today. Like here, let's, cut, let's, let's count up 50 bowls of raisin bran. And when we get to 50, then we party. That's about food. But then what happened on top of that? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit, right? It's an event that got overlaid on top of an agriculturally themed holiday. Now take Sukkot, for instance, which is the fall harvest of the wheat. It's a party. It's, it's about abundance of food. It's party. Let's spend a week partying, right? Because God has shown us favor. He's given us rain. And, and that's, what, that's what Sukkot was all about. Sukkot is called in the book of Exodus, the feast of the ingathering, the feast of the harvest. Okay. Now, God likes to take these kind of cyclical agricultural events and then do things that are similar on top of them. He likes to take ingathering, ingathering holy days and use it as an opportunity to ingather souls like on, Acts, on, on Shavuot in Acts chapter 2. Same goes with, with the Feast of Ingathering um, at Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. He's one day going to gather the nations to his city. Zechariah 14. The nations that don't go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Ingathering, they won't get any rain on their land. You see what he's doing there? He's taking an agriculturally themed thing and he's overlaying another dynamic on top of it. And saying, now this is about the ingathering of the nations. You see that? So Israel since ancient time has always had two sowing, two harvest times. Still to this day they do. Two sowing, two harvest times. We kind of have that in the U.S. where, you know, you go to Miss Joanne's house or Lucy's house. In the spring, she's going to be growing a, a certain variety of crops in her garden. In the fall, she's going to be growing a different variety of things. There might be some overlap, but they're different. There's things that can that can handle like warmer weather. There's things that can hold, handle like cooler weather, right? Am I right? Yeah. Assuming yeah. that? Okay. But you have these two different in the summer. If you go to my house right now, my garden is a wreck because it's so hot yes. that plants just don't like growing in that much heat. Mm-hmm. I have like sweet potatoes going. Okra might grow right now. Um, there's maybe like maybe corn, but no, we're on the tail end of corn. But I have two growing seasons in my life as well. Spring and fall. Israel had the same. Okay? So it says here in Exodus 23, 16, Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. This, the festival of harvest, what do you think that is? What, what was the first harvest day I just talked about? Uh, Shavuot. Yeah. Shavuot. Okay? Then it says celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end or bringing forth of the year when you gather in your crops from the field that's Sukkot Sukkot is the festival of the ingathering okay so wait a second you mean to tell me that the festival of the ingathering is at the end of the year the festival of Sukkot is at the end of the year that doesn't make sense because the, the Hebrew calendar has 12 sometimes 13 months to it and Sukkot, we all know, falls in the seventh month. So I still have like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I still have like six to seven months left in my year. How is that the end of the year? 
That's probably the growing season. Because it's the end of a growing season. It's the end of a year. Mm -hmm. Okay? Remember I said that there's these two growing seasons that are revolving around each other. But here's the key right here. Vehag ha'asif betzet hashana. So this, these are the key at the at the end or beginning, bringing forth of the year. Bet bet seit at the seit. What does that mean? <coughs> so I, I found a couple verses where that's used. Genesis one twelve is one. Can somebody go to Genesis one twenty four that has a Bible up here? So I'm I'm basically I'm tackling part two of this truth claim that the Torah doesn't talk about a new year's happening in the fall in the seventh month i'm tackling that part now okay so genesis 1 12 here it is i want to figure out if this word if this word sate is used right there what does it mean the earth brought forth grass it sated grass okay plants each yielding its own kind of seed and trees each producing its own kind of okay so what's happening there that that the earth is growing grass Right? It's bringing forth grass. Grass is beginning to grow. There wasn't grass. There was grass. That word sait there, it means something new is happening. It's coming out. Okay? Who has the 124? You got it? Mm-hmm. Um, there God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, Okay, stop there. That word producing animals of its own kind. That's bringing forth animals. It's like birthing animals of their own kind, right? That's that, that's that word sate that's being used right there, okay? So it says celebrate the feast of Sukkot at the bringing forth of the year. Wait a second. How is the year coming forth in the seventh month? So that's, that's my first witness that there is not, that, that, that there is a Torah notion that there is a beginning of a year in the seventh month. Make sense? Are you tracking so far with me? Are you following? Okay. Here's my second witness. Exodus 34, 22. Celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which is Shavuot, Pentecost, with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering Sukkot at the turn of the year. Wait a second. I thought the turn of the year doesn't come till like in the spring. Aviv. How is there a turn of the year in the seventh month out of 13 months? Doesn't make sense. It's because there is a new year that's happening. Okay? So you got to remember, think like an ancient Israeli, that if, if there was a turning of the year in the fall based around this stuff, it's only natural that your life begin to revolve around the harvesting of this stuff in the fall as well. And another aspect of it is that the land would all revert back every seven years to the original owner. Um, count seven times seven so that the seven Sabbath years amount to the paid for the okay. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. So in other words, you guys know these sabbatical years? And you know these jubilee years? It's like these patterns of seven years, right? When are we supposed to start and end the counting of these years? The seventh month. Actually, it, right on the Day of Atonement. So many of you probably didn't know that, that the Shemitah, the sabbatical years, begin and end on the Day of Atonement. So right there we have a new year. Right there. There it is. 
to, in order for me to keep track of the Shemitah years. I've got to know when is the seventh month. That's a new year right there. So that's how Judaism over the centuries and over the millennia have treated, and that's why they treated the first day of the seventh month as a turning of the year, as a head of the year. And how do I translate head of the year into Hebrew? Rosh Hashanah. Okay? So there's your evidence, your Torah evidence, as to where that comes from. Now, does the Bible, does the Torah ever call the first day of the seventh month the head of the year? No, it doesn't. It doesn't call it Rosh Hashanah. Does the Bible implicitly say that the seventh month is a turning of the year? Yes. But does the Bible also say that Aviv in the spring is the turning of the year? Yes. So how Judaism looks at it to this day is that there's a civil year where, a civil calendar where there's a Shemitah and Jubilee cycles beginning in the seventh month. Kings actually um, traditionally would have been coronated on the seventh month. So all that is revolving at the same time, but is being reckoned and, and begun and ended in the seventh month. Then you have what they would call the spiritual new year, the year that's focused on the redemption of mankind, where it begins in the spring. And how does it start off with? Passover. Then it goes to the Feast of First Fruits. Then it goes to Shavuot. All right. It follows the, the, the cycle of the feast days. What's fascinating, if you look at the spring holy days, they're all about like personal familial redemption and salvation. Okay. Like if I, if I brought a Passover offering to the temple, I'd bring that back to my family and we would eat it as a family. Okay. It, um, whereas, whereas the fall feast, the fall holy days, they're about communal and national redemption and salvation. Okay. But the two are revolving like this, but they never will intersect. But the two combined, you know, is the, the eclipsing of those two aspects is how the redemption will be brought forth. So Yeshua, let me kind of back up here. Yeshua dies on Passover. Then he, he resurrects on first fruits. Then he pours out the Holy Spirit on Shavuot. Has he done anything to the fall feast yet? So remember, they're the revolving around this, but then... God is adding more and more layers of meaning on top of that, right? Has he done anything on the Feast of Trumpets? No. Has he done anything on Yom Kippur? No. Has he done anything on the Feast of uh, Tabernacles? No. He didn't add another layer of meaning on top of those things. Will he? We could logically assume that that's going to happen, right? So we can go back to my original question. Noah, set your alarm clock for 5, 10 a.m. every first day of July, whatever, and he would say, why? We could then apply that and say, when God tells us to sound the shofar or make a teruah, a loud noise, the first day of the seventh month, do we have an idea as to why now? When Paul says that, how does, well, how does Paul describe the return of Yeshua? What will we hear? A loud trumpet, a teruah, right? So Paul maybe knows something we don't, right? He's wanting to reveal that to us. Hey, get ready, because on the last trumpet, the dead and Messiah will rise, right? That's the return. That's it. It's go time. That's the alarm clock. So the Mikra Kodesh is that we all get together and we practice doing that. We practice being a bride that's unified together, that's waiting and ready for the king to come. In the seventh month, when they would coronate kings, when the greatest jubilee in the history of mankind will happen. We're ready for it. Here we are. 
We're here gathered as your bride, anticipating the king's return, right? And that's, that's the why of this verse in Leviticus 23, to sound a shofar, to make a teruah, okay? But here's what happens sometimes with Judaism, with Christianity, growing up, you know, uh, celebrating Easter, Christmas. Do you think eight-year-old Gabe Rutledge, when I walked out into the kitchen on Easter Sunday morning, and there was a big basket, basket that my mom prepared the night before, and it had, you know, grass coming out of it, and chocolate eggs, and, and like little pieces of candy, and all this stuff in the basket. Do you think I looked at that and I said, ah, that's right, Jesus resurrected today. <laughs> no, the Easter bunny came. No, what did I think? Chocolate. Chocolate, right? Or when I, when I walked out on Christmas morning and uh, there's a bunch of presents under this tree that's all lit up and beautiful and all this, and I saw all these presents, some of which had my name on it, do you think, ah, oh, that's right, uh, Jesus may have been born this day? No, I thought, give me. That's mine, right? Let me see if I got that Lego set I wanted, right? So sometimes we as humans, we take a component of our faith and we blow it out of proportion a little bit and overshadow with that, we overshadow the deeper principle behind that celebration. We do that sometimes with Hanukkah. With Hanukkah, we talk a lot about the miracle of the lights, don't we? And we talk about this amazing miracle, but we forget to talk about and recognize and admonish the idea that a group of Jews refused to assimilate, that stuck to the Torah, that were faithful, and, and they cleansed the temple of pagan worship. We forget to talk about those aspects of Hanukkah, don't we? And we think, oh, the miracle of lights, right? Let's light a Hanukkah. That's great and all, and that may have happened, but we don't need to forget the deeper principle. So sometimes we look at Rosh Hashanah and traditionally, you know, we eat like we eat like foods that pertain to Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year. And we wish each other La Shana Tova, have a good year. And we blow the shofar and it's like the big, the big thing. But are we forgetting the deeper principle of it? That it's an alarm clock that's supposed to wake us up from this deep, long slumber. Yeshua has been gone a long time. It's been 2000 years. Wake up one day. No man knows the day or the hour. Right? Just like the alarm clock that goes off, you're in a deep sleep and all of a sudden it jerks you awake and you come to your senses. What's going on? You know, I got your duty. No, but that's what, that's what Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, that's the deeper principle is anticipating the return of the king so that we can be one of the first ones to hail him and coronate him as king. And if we do Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, to the exclusion of that, we're failing. We're failing. It's all about anticipating his second return. Make sense? Now, I think that's why Judaism, over, they take Rosh Hashanah and use Rosh Hashanah to overshadow that deeper principle. Why? Because they're not waiting for the return of Yeshua. They're not even waiting for Yeshua, right? So to them, that why has not been answered like it has for us. Noah, set your alarm clock. Why? Well, Judaism doesn't have a good answer for that. We do. How exciting, right? But we should be proclaiming that why. We should know. You got to get up. You got to wake up. You got to be anticipating the king, right? Get yourself ready. Get yourself and your home and your affairs figured out and in order. Um, in Ezra 3, how are we doing on time? I don't know. 248. I'll, I'll, I'll go there real fast. Well, could someone else, my voice, um, maybe spare my voice. And then somebody go to Nehemiah 8. So Ezra 3. And Nehemiah 8. 
and these are, I think these are um, parallel chapters to each other. A lot of the events in Ezra are described in, in Nehemiah, but they're, they're paralleled events, just different perspectives of those events. Who's got Ezra 3? Anybody? <laughs> just start somewhere and I'll stop you. Okay, sh- sh- listen, go ahead. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Okay, pause. Where have they been? So in the seventh month, the people settled in their towns. Where have they been? Huh? No. In Babylon. In Babylon. In Babylon. So why are, it's no coincidence that they're coming and resettling in their towns in the seventh month. Why? Why do you think that is? Because it corresponds with a Shemitah and a Jubilee. Mm -hmm. All right, continue. Then Yeshua, son of Yosadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. Okay, so they come back in the seventh month. They resettle from, from 70 years of being in exile in Babylon. It just happens to be on the seventh month, the turning of the year, as the Torah describes it, the, the reckoning of the Shemitah and the Jubilee years, and here they resume the sacrificial system on the altar. Like, that's profound, right? And it happens on the seventh month. Which seven is a number, obviously, of, like, completion and, and fullness, right? And then, who has Nehemiah 8? Go. I don't, I don't have the chapter yet. Oh, okay. On the first day of the seventh month. On the first day of the seventh month. Yeah, very specific, yeah. Mm-hmm. All the people gathered with one accord in the open space in front of the water gate and asked Ezra, the Torah teacher, to bring the scroll of the Torah to Moshe. Of Moshe, which Adonai had commanded Israel. Ezra the Cohen brought the Torah before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and all children old enough to understand. It was the first day of the seventh month. Facing the open space in front of the water gate, he read from it to the men, the women, and the children who could understand from early morning Yeah, I might just made you suffer through that. Uh, but yeah, so what day of the month was that? First day of the seventh month. They're coming back. They're reading the Torah. They're rediscovering the roots of their faith, right? So to speak. <laughs> now, that's what the first day of the seventh month should be like for us. 
we get the Torah, we read it, we rediscover the roots of our faith, and we say, hey, we messed up, we erred in our ways. But the king's coming, right? Let's establish his kingdom. Let's get his kingdom prepared, a bride that's ready for his return. And, and both of these verses that we read have the common theme, jubilee, return from captivity, and preparation, don't they? Mm-hmm. Repentance. Both happen on the first day of the seventh month. Revelation 1-7, which is, I think it was Michael one day pointed out in my class. Where is Michael here? He pointed out one time how it was like, Revelation 1-7, first of seven. Uh, he said, look, he's coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all peoples will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So this is what his return will be like. You have two types of people when the king comes after being gone for a long time. Those who are happy, those who are sad. Those who are rejoicing, those who are mourning, because they realize they were on the wrong side of the king and his decrees, right? So Yom Teruah. Rosh Hashanah, Shofar, Tuesday, whatever you choose to call it. (laughs) Or is it a Wednesday? I don't know. Whatever you choose to call it, my prayer for you is that you put your focus and your emphasis on this holy day, hearing the sound of the alarm and saying, am I ready for the king's return? Are there things in my life and in my house that are not in order? When the king comes back, will I be found faithful? So whatever you call it, whether it be Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, let's all agree that that's the theme, right? That's the heart of it. All right? But I hope that this gave you some insight. Traditionally, this day has been recognized in Judaism as the beginning of creation of man. When God first took Adam and breathed his breath of life into him. Not the beginning of creation, but the creation of Adam. And there's a lot of reasons why they believe that. Some of them are valid. Some of them are like, like a little bit more mystical, esoteric things. But the picture of taking an empty vessel and breathing the breath of life into it reminds me a lot about a shofar, doesn't it? Yeah. You're taking something that's broken off, it's broken, it's hollowed out and empty, and then you breathe into it and it makes a loud noise, a very bold instrument. You can't play it quietly. But that's the essence of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah is we're recreating ourselves in a way and refocusing and saying, you know what, there was a long summer of lull of tiredness and not celebrating any holy days. But now, you know what, I gotta gotta get back to it. I gotta rededicate myself to this purpose. So is it Rosh Hashanah? Is it Yom Teruah? Is it Shofar Tuesday? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Shofar Tuesday, I like it. It is. But... So far, so far. <laughs> yeah, so far, so good. I hope I hope that adds some clarity. And if you if you would like to borrow either of these books or anything, um, I'll just get a blood sample from you, and you can do that. <laughs> but um, are there? Let me open up for any questions. Are there any any questions? If I'm squinting, it's because my eyes are. I have a headache. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know if this is relating to that or not. It's just coming to me. I think the verse is in Revelations where it says, um, blessed are those who know the joyful sound. Is that mm. what it's talking about? The sound of the shofar? With oh, the perhaps. Yeah, I didn't think about that. It's interesting. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound. Huh. Are going to be shouting too, I think. So yeah. The voice of the and a teruah can be translated as a shofar, or a, it's just a, it's a really generic word. It can be a shout. Like when the people of Jericho walk around, they give a shout, but that Hebrew word there is a teruah. 
So a teruah is just a loud noise, an unexpected loud noise, really, is how you translate that. Just like, yeah, <laughs> like Ariana's mom whistle. <laughs> Any other questions, though? Yeah, Anthony. Yes, yeah, because the Torah cycle, in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's, that's when they think that the Torah cycle was actually begun, in times of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they base it on the seventh month, exactly, yeah. So we, we begin reading the Torah, and we end the Torah, so to speak, on the seventh month. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I was just thinking when you were talking about the shofar blowing in the Jewish wedding, you know, when mm -hmm. the groom is coming, they blow the shofar. Yeah. And, you know, the... To prepare the bride. And the ten virgins that are, yeah. you know, asleep. It just kind of all ties them together. Yeah. The yeah, it does. So I, I think we could look at Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. We could look at it like the king, like the king, the bride, groom is right around the corner. Everybody wake up, get ready. He's right around the corner. Not so much as he's here, he's landed, he's, he's here with us now. I think that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Or yom, yom. Uh, But I think, I think the first day of the seventh month is to wake us up and get us ready for the, the bigger events that are to come in the rest of the seventh month. Makes sense. All right. Good question. Though. Anybody Isn't else? In preparation for Yom Kippur too. Yeah. Time of mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it begins the what we call the uh, ten days of all. The ten days of all, like the ten days of repentance, and leading up to Yom Kippur. Um. Where it's a it's a heightened sense of re repentance and introspection on the ten days of all. Anybody else though? I hope you enjoyed this. I thank you for all your attention and everything. And yeah, let me close in prayer. Can I do that? And then we'll, uh, we'll part ways. But I'll be hanging out if you have any other questions or anything. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these, uh, these fellow Bible nerds who are here and wanting to learn more about your word. And may you bless them and richly encourage them in their faith through uh, what little efforts I have to bring. And we thank you so much for your word and the fact that your promises are true and that you will fulfill those promises. And we give all glory to you. In Yeshua's name, amen. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, let me go to the... Clear up. Yeah. Thank you. I... Yeah.